Welcome everybody, my name is Pav Bryan, I am Performance Director here at Spokes and you are listening to Bespoke. I'm delighted to be joined tonight by Helen who is uh, part of the Internationals group. Um, how are you Helen? Yeah, very good, thank you. A little bit tired having uh, just come back from our adventure, so if there's a, a pause or a period of quiet, I'll, it's probably because I've fallen asleep, but I'll try not to. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, and uh, we'll get on to that in a minute. Everybody that's listening who uh, who doesn't know, you've just come back from the, and I'm going to get this right, Donans des Els Ovelo. Ovelo, that right? Did I say it right? Yeah. <laughs> essentially, yeah. essentially it's the Tour de France, isn't it? You did the Tour de France, basically. Yeah, so what we've been doing is uh, riding the route of the Tour de France one day ahead of the professional men. Um, it's something that Don Antezel Zuvelo have been doing for a number of years. This was actually the fifth year that that group of women um, have been riding. And this year was the first time that they invited an international team uh, to join them, hence us setting up the internationals. Fantastic. So yeah, we would forgive you if you do fall asleep during the podcast. <laughs> um, but let's just uh, backtrack a little bit. I, I know we, we all really want to hear a lot about the event and how your training and nutrition and everything was for that. But but what I want to do is I want to set the, 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 the base, base story here. Um, what Who are the internationals? Why did you come together? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Yep. So um, the internationals are 10 amateur uh, female cyclists. We have a global representation. So we've got um, four from Great Britain, one from Scotland, uh, a lady from Holland, uh, one American living in Switzerland, uh, and then three Aussies who they're actually British, but call themselves Australian because they've Mm -hmm. been living there for about 20 years. So um, a group of 10, we basically were formed uh, as a team over the internet. Uh, We didn't meet until our first day um, in Belgium. Um, And we formed, as I say, in order to ride with a French-speaking team, Donald Zelzuvelo, for the first time this year, having an international team. And the intention is to raise awareness of the inequalities that exist um, in the sport of cycling, which is a sport that we all love. Um, but basically to highlight the key differences that exist between men and women in a professional arena. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, a great job you're doing too. Just one of the things that I, I'm sure the listeners are interested in, you say amateur, what level What level amateur would you describe yourself at? Do you, do you guys race at all? Do you do you do anything or are you just sort of casual riders? Um, so we didn't know this until, until we all met, um, and obviously in just sort of initial conversations, but some of us, uh, do race, but mostly road racing. Um, some of the, uh, women are MTB. Um, a lot of us have done some long distance events and kind of sportifs. Uh, a few of us have done multi-distance events. Um, and then all the way up to um, the three Australians are part of a team in Australia called the Velaroos, um, and they have done race across America and uh, race around Ireland. So they're probably kind of up there, up there in terms of sort of um, top amateur, I would say, if I was speaking on their behalf. Um, but we all have full-time jobs, um, so we are all... 
uh, if I can say normal, <laughs> um, maybe not always described as normal, but yeah, we've, we've all got full-time jobs. Um, some of the women have got young families. So we've kind of got the, the normal conundrum of trying to, to fit everything in. Um, so we've taken on this challenge because it means so much to us. Yeah, absolutely. One of the questions that I noted down that I was going to ask you is that, and I think this is so important to to mention to everybody that's listening, is that you all you all have jobs as well, <laughs> and families and everything. So not only are you are you sort of have you been training and doing this event and uh, trying to raise as much awareness and everything to about the inequality in, in the genders between cycling, but but you're, you're doing that while you're having to uh, having to work as well. So uh, it's it's really impressive. I really I really have a lot of respect for for what you what you all have done so um moving on to uh let's talk a little bit about um I mean, while I'm sure that most of our listeners are aware of the huge differences between uh, women and men cycling, have you got anything specific that you would like to highlight that shows just how how big the um the difference is yeah i mean i i obviously our focus has been on um on the tour de france um the tour de France is you know, a historical event. It's something that even if you're not interested in cycling, um, it gets your attention. It gets the attention of of the world media. Um, and really the most obvious disparity is, you know, where are the women in that race? Um, so there used to be a, uh, a multi-stage event for women. Um, I think back in the 1980s um, that was organized by the organizers of the Tour de France um, the current offering is called La Course, um, and this year was a one-day event for professional women. Um, the course this year was actually just five laps of what the men did as their time trial course. Um, and really, to us, that just it's ju- it's nothing more than a token gesture. Um, you know, the women didn't even get a mountain stage this year. Um, so how are they supposed to kind of demonstrate that there is the demand to watch women's racing? How are they supposed to demonstrate how talented they are? Um, I mean, Mariana Voss still did a pretty great job, uh, demonstrating some of those things, but, um, you know, there's just no platform, um, that's anywhere near as, as equal to what the men, uh, kind of have open to them. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's a really, it really is just a token, isn't it? It's 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 just the bare minimum to give you like one one day of which is essentially a a, a dull kind of circuit. I mean, I'm sure it was yeah. really really good to watch, and I, I'm sure that like as you say, there's some really big names in cycling that would still come and give it give it their all. But uh, yeah. I mean, in comparison, it's a bit of a joke. I don't know if the organisers have ever given a reason for that. Are you aware of any reason why they don't have anything more than that? Um, so I think even La Course in previous years has been more than one day. Um, it just, yeah, and it has in the past definitely been um, a mountain stage, but um, it's it's generally sort of the same, uh, I guess, broad uh, reasons or excuses, however far you want to go. But it's generally around the difficulty in logistics um, of organising something of, of equal, um, kind of, uh, attraction. Um, I know that there is sort of a bit of a traveling circus that happens, um, obviously with the tour 
Um, I think it's been quoted that something like 4,000 people move around with with the tour. I think the requirement for um, any town that's involved is something like the availability of 1,200 beds. Um, so it is obviously a huge, huge ask. Um, but logistics has often been used as, as one reason. I think coverage um, and media interest, sponsorship, um, all of those kind of more commercially driven financial arguments um, have been used as reasons why at the moment it's not possible um, to have a female equivalent. Um, but I, I just think if you, you know, however you look at it, you're comparing at the moment in 2019 one day versus 21 for the men. This year it was 120K for the women versus what should have been 3,460k for the men. Um, it's something like 19,000 euros prize money for the woman, uh, for the female winner versus about anything up to about 2 million pounds. I've seen quoted. I don't know whether that's true. Um, for a Tour de France winner It's just, it's massively different. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, quite, quite disgraceful really, isn't it? It's, um, uh, it, it, yeah, not not okay, and something needs to change. And I think that uh, in in an ideal world, what would you like to see? So, what we've kind of been, um, you know, discussing while we've been riding, and also obviously beforehand, was it's about creating an equal opportunity. So, something that is multi day um, that has a platform more similar to something like the Tour de France manages to create in terms of sponsorship, in terms of prize money, in terms of excitement, in terms of fan engagement, something that just gives um, professional women an opportunity to to actually showcase um, their skills and their talents. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just to being honest, how long do you think it would take before we get there if we if we ever do? What what would you I know there's obviously a different question here. What you would like it to be now, but where do you realistically see it being happening? Yeah, I mean, it is happening um primarily outside of France um by different race organizers, so there are multi-stage events out there, so a similar timing to the Tour de France um is the Giro Rossa for women. Um, which is a 10-day uh, stage event. There are new events apparently in the pipeline. I believe it's somewhere in the Nordics. I think it might be Norway. Um, they're actually designing and have crafted a multi-day event for women. Um, so it is happening elsewhere. I think there's definitely a call for it uh, to happen in France, um, you know, we've found out over the last three and a half weeks, you know, how beautiful France is to be able to uh, to be able to cycle rounds. And obviously we're doing it at a very different pace compared to if you were racing. But France has got so much to offer. It shouldn't it shouldn't be excluded from um, from any of those progressions. We, while we were away, did actually hear that the ASO, who are the organisers of the tour, um, are supposedly setting up a delegation um, to commence in September to look at uh, the possibilities of, of hosting a women's tour. So, you know, we'd obviously try and keep the pressure and um, we're looking uh, with a lot of interest as to how that's going to develop. Yeah, absolutely. Watch this space with... Uh 
Fingers crossed, um, really, aren't we? We're uh, we're all hoping. I mean, just from a, a personal point of view, I mean, while I uh, obviously I, I don't I don't have the statistics, but I, I can tell you from uh, from just like speaking with uh, people in the industry, and even even just when I log into Facebook and I see what people are talking about uh, in terms of the cycling, um, the difference this year compared to maybe even last year or three five years ago is definitely positive we're, we're definitely uh we're definitely getting there and this is this isn't just women that are posting this is men as well men men are like actually coming around to the fact that wow actually this is incredible like the, i think gcn quoted um the difference between like the top the top like female cyclists versus the top men in terms of their wages and their earnings from like uh uh from a, a, even in a year is it's fractions it's percents percent and and that's crazy like how you can how you can earn in a in a in a week or a month what somebody can can earn in a year for doing essentially exactly the same thing is ridiculous it's absolutely crazy I mean there's always like you kind of brought up there's an argument of sponsorship and uh personal image rights and stuff like that but again no that's just I mean that's sort of it's an excuse more than anything it's not it I mean it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't add up to me so I mean as I get as I said earlier hats off to all of you at uh, internationals and uh, we we will we will await um, ASO's announcement with uh, uh, with fingers crossed as I said so uh, I guess I guess really what we, we also would love to talk about is, um, is is how you did train for the event because we, we have a lot of people and I'm, I'm sure uh, not just women listening but also men who uh, would love to do uh, the Tour de France like uh, e- even at a, a slower pace like a, a, a leisure or a sportive Grand Fondo type pace doesn't have to be racing like a madman or woman um, but we could uh, how, how did you fit that in around your your busy busy life yeah so um, I think just one point to clarify so we were riding as a team of 10 um, together so we weren't racing each other we weren't racing um the French speaking team who we were, who we were riding with. So really for us, a lot of our training was, um, about endurance. Um, so kind of the, you know, you just ride, you've just got to get out there and ride your bike. Um, a few of us are are fortunate enough to have coaches. So, um, some of that accountability, uh, sits with, um, another person as well, just in terms of being, being able to best use the available time. I think that's a really important thing when, you know, especially today I'm sitting working in London, um, you know, you've got so many pressures on you. I think it's really important to be able to know that your training um, is kind of specific and, um, you know, you're using it kind of, you're using that available time most most efficiently. Um, in terms of what that actually looked like, uh, I think I was probably doing anything between probably minimum of eight hours a week, maximum of sort of 20, um, depending on how long my rides were at the weekend. Um, but that was generally, you know, interval sessions, um, on the turbo when the weather wasn't so great or outside as best as possible, um so mostly those sessions during the week and then backed up by some longer riding and some back-to-back riding um over the weekend um we've also tried to where possible sort of structure events that are helpful um some of that has been planned some of that is uh unplanned i actually only found out about 
joining the team uh, in early March. So I already had a number of things uh, sort of already scheduled, paid for, booked, um, including actually the Maratona, which I wasn't able to do because I was uh, away. Uh, but things like um, I went to Sweden to do the Vatterunden. Uh, so that's a 300k um, ride around uh, a massive lake in Sweden. Um, you know, things like that, which were events that actually, you know, they were beneficial to the training in the ter- in the sense that that was longer than I needed to actually be able to ride. But mentally, that helped me. Um, so the longest day on the tour was 230k. Um, and at least mentally and physically, I knew that I'd ridden that distance before. So, yes, I hadn't ridden that distance backed up by the amount of kilometers that I'd already got in my legs. But I'd at least kind of in isolation, um, you know, had enough confidence that I could do that ride. Um, I think the other thing that, you know, we all struggled with, regardless of training, was time on the bike, um, just getting sore, uh, having issues with saddle sores, um, generally just trying to keep uh, keep up the energy levels um, and keep the pedals keep the pedals turning. Really, we were in a fairly small group, so you don't have you know a massive peloton to kind of pull you along. We're all doing uh, whatever we could as our as our time on the front. Um, but yeah, I mean, generally riding riding as a group, just helping each other out. So very different to you know your high intensity stuff that we that you'd have for for race training. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you you raise uh, quite a few uh, really interesting points there. One thing that I kind of know from uh, from my ultra background and, uh, and and what I teach to my ultra clients is uh, it's not the it's not the duration on the bike that's going to stop you from riding. It's the intensity at which you ride at. Pretty much anybody can um, can ride a bike all day once you've got that basic endurance down, which is what you you describe as you have. It's just uh, when you start to increase that intensity, and uh, I think that that's uh, it's really crucial. I think you you've done really well to to, to factor all of that that in. I I guess um, did you in in terms of getting as much on the bike time as possible um when you're working did you commute uh, via bike or is that possible or did you just were you early morning trainer sessions evenings or anything like that um so it is possible for me to commute to work um i i actually don't um but i was trying to i'm fortunate enough to live uh in southwest london very close to um an area called richmond park uh, so it's fairly traffic free. Um, so I generally would do, uh, a session in the morning, um, before work, be able to come home, have a shower, get ready and then go into work, um, and still be at my desk at a reasonable time. Um, I did, I, I did try and do a couple of days where I was doing double days. Um, so I do sort of an hour in the morning, um, potentially zone something like zone two and then um, a higher intensity session after work um, and actually I found that it was kind of more stressful trying to be able to fit it in around meetings that overran or you know just always having that constant pressure that you had another session to do actually working with my coach we we changed it and sort of said that the extra stress of trying to do it isn't it's not worth it you don't need to be able to to always do those sessions. So I think it's also important that when you're trying, you know, recognize what the limitations are um, for me, sort of recognize what was stressing me out and, and not really being beneficial and yeah, trying to be flexible and adapt to that. Um, but still sort of 
knowing that you've got a backstop of, of training that you need to do, um, but working within those boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Some really good points there and actually lead me on to a, a subject that I, I really know that I, I personally I want, to, I want to know about because it's something that, uh, uh, that I've been through. Um, how, how was your mentality um, throughout this training process? You mentioned stress of doing double sessions and I think you did the right thing there by, by taking that pressure away and actually just fitting that in I mean um, I know a lot of people and I don't know whether you can relate to this Helen but um, in, in certain circumstances you get to a certain level of fitness and actually what's going to go first isn't your body it's going to be your mind and and it can be really really hard to continue to be motivated to get on the bike and and do as much work especially when you're doing like a 40-hour work week or you've got other commitments family friends and everything and it, it becomes a real tug of war um, and for me me personally that's been a, a one of my biggest things that I've improved about my training is how I deal with that mentally I don't know if you've got any any similarities there or if you've got any uh, little uh, uh, other tricks that you could uh, tell us about yeah definitely I think um, I'm quite lucky in the fact that actually I, I enjoy training I like training I actually weirdly enjoy training more than I do racing or competing um, so from that perspective motivation wise generally I was okay um it's definitely important to make those calls along the way though as i say so you know ducking out of the double training when it didn't make sense um i think everyone was conscious of not doing too much um so you always kind of you know if you wake up and you feel rubbish you know don't push through it um actually try and listen to your body which can be really really difficult when your head is saying one thing and your body says something else um, and often the other way around as well, your body's good to go and you just can't be asked and you don't want to do it. Um, so I think it is important just to try and listen. I think <laughs> one thing actually that was sort of imposed on us, but actually was very helpful was our bikes got shipped. Uh, I think it was just over a week before the, uh, first day. So I only have one bike. Um, so suddenly my ability to train was mm -hmm. cut short um and actually i genuinely think that was a really good thing for me because yes there was an option i could go to a spin class or i could do something else but um it almost was sort of self-imposed rest whereas some of the girls still had access to another bike they're still trying to you know however much someone says to you don't panic train you know there's still quick sort of turbo sessions that were being squeezed in so Actually, for me, I think not having access to my bike in the last part was really useful. Um, I think the trying to view your training as slightly more holistic um, is also really important. So, you know, that last week where I didn't have my bike, trying to shift to the mindset of, well, other things like sleep and eating well, you know, I can put my efforts into into doing that instead and trying to, I'm not very good at it, I admit, but trying to treat those things with equal importance, um, I definitely, uh, definitely suggest. Um, in terms of sort of mental stress, I think one thing that was really difficult is because we'd never met as a team, we had no idea how strong anyone was. We had no idea how people generally rode. Um, I think as with anything we were sort of hearing snippets from people within the team or I actually remember listening to a, a podcast that um, one of the Australian women had done 
uh, about Race Across America. And I was hugely intimidated and worried that, you know, my training wasn't enough or actually on the bike, I wasn't going to be able to keep up or things like that. And yeah, I think it's normal to have, you know, normal to have those fears, especially when you don't know the other people. Um, but then to counter that, we did know that we were riding as a team and how important it was going to be to try and work together and to support each other um, and to be open in our communication. So, you know, shout when you're not feeling great or if you can't take a turn on the front, you know, yes, people might roll their eyes at the time, but they're just going to forget three minutes later. It's not, it's not a big deal. So um, yeah, I think focusing on kind of what's important and also for us focusing on the reason that we were doing it is um, a huge motivator. Yeah, absolutely. Again, you, you nailed some really, really good points there in terms of uh, just the, the, like the remembering why uh, why are you doing it and having something so significant. And I think that's probably a really good takeaway point for anybody who is training for anything that on the on the face of it, people might see as, uh, as very sort of uh, ambitious. But actually, if you've got a good enough reason why you're doing something, then there's pretty much nothing that will stop you from achieving it. Um, there's uh, uh, re- Realistically, there's only sort of third party influence injury and stuff like that that will so yeah i mean that's great work and i guess just before we move on i want to talk a, a little bit about the the ride what in in general you, you sort of mentioned a few things uh the mentality of the group while you're actually doing uh, the ride over the three weeks um how was it were there were there moments where there were people who were a little bit maybe uh, overwhelmed by it all maybe there was uh, some tears i mean i know from my experience doing ultras i mean i i, I literally I probably have go through every emotion at some point during the day. And I, I'm certain that there's as a group that there's probably that as well. And uh, I would love to, I would love to, and I know the listeners would like to an insight into exactly what that group mentality was like. Yeah. And I think we had everything to be honest. Um, we were self-funding um, our journey around France. Um, that often meant that we were, staying in accommodation um, that meant that there were several of us uh, in a room. We're staying in accommodation that sort of wasn't air conditioned and it was pretty warm um, with the heat wave in France. Um, And so I think sleep was a factor on the group for sure. Uh, So even though, you know, you want to be um, enjoying every second of it and even though you might want to be in the best possible mood, um, you know, the lack of sleep, we're probably sleeping five, six hours a day, um, a night, sorry, was, you know, was huge. So yes, there were absolutely a lot of tears. I think probably can say with some confidence that all 10 of us cried at one point. Um, but we also had massive highs. So, uh, I genuinely think that we had more fun than we were expecting to, uh, the group gelled really well together. Um, lots of people, uh, and we had four crew with us who were helping us, you know, lots of people said that you could hear us coming down the road because someone would be sort of cackling and, um, you know, making, making noises and things. So I do think we had a lot more fun than we were expecting to, um, I think the other thing is just the distances that are involved. So, you know, roughly speaking, we're probably doing about 200K a day. You get every emotion within that ride just because of it's a really long ride and you're on your bike for, you know, six to eight hours. 
I kind of was thinking quite a lot how if I go for a ride or a training ride when, you know, when I'm in the UK, it might be it might be three hours. And pretty much you can say that was a good ride. That was a bad ride. It was an OK ride. You know, I had fun or I didn't have fun. It's quite easy to classify kind of how that ride went. But when you've got 200K, you've got a bit that's really fun, a bit that's terrible, a bit where you're hurting, a bit where you're hungry, a bit where you suddenly feel like you've got energy from somewhere. You know, you have all of those ups and downs every single day that you're riding. Um, I think the only day where... I actually think the group probably had a bit of a downer all at the same time, um, which sort of isn't really what you want, is is the day that was 230K. Um, everyone was just pretty bored, um, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, how so much you sort of try and look around and kind of go, oh, isn't it amazing? And um, yeah, everyone was just a bit bored and a bit flat. Um, the route was entirely flat. It was windy. Um, and... Yeah, I think every other day you at least always had the majority of the group were positive when you maybe weren't feeling so much. And so overall, you can kind of pull each other through. Um, you know, that day we we all just kind of had to get on with it. Um, it wasn't that exciting. Um, and yeah, we just kind of survival mode, I think, also comes in, uh, comes into play a bit. I think the rest days were quite difficult for us. So we had two rest days, so exactly the same as the men. Um, the first rest day came after 10 days of riding. Um, so everyone was hugely looking forward to the rest day. Um, and then they kind of arrived and we almost didn't know what to do with ourselves because it was out of routine. You know, we'd got into the habit of waking up early, having breakfast. We'd drive for about an hour to get to the start um or where we were starting you know you then might ride all the way through with a couple of stops um and a lunch stop you might finish at about six we'd pack up the vans drive for about an hour hour and a half to where we were staying everyone would get a shower we'd have dinner you then kind of try and stretch and, get, and sort of get your stuff ready for the next day and and that became our routine and then suddenly on a rest day we're like, oh, what do you do? <laughs> um, <laughs> even though you've wanted it so much and right. so badly. Um, but then actually we had no structure. And also the expectation, I think, on a rest day that you don't move and that, you you know, you just put your feet up and you shouldn't be doing anything. Um, and we were still trying to clean and service our bikes and, you know, maybe go to a supermarket so that we could actually buy some of the food that we wanted and, and things like that. They, yeah, they were, they were almost slightly weird i think actually absolutely that's uh, it's really interesting to hear that that's uh uh it, it quite fascinating and you mentioned uh the food that you um uh that you wanted there uh were there some nutritional challenges on the three weeks um yeah for sure i mean i think one of our one of the members of of crew sent out um a spreadsheet uh a fair few weeks in advance of of us um heading out to belgium and i, I don't think he expected the amount of dietary requirements um <laughs> that came back uh so i personally am celiac um so i find that fairly challenging um especially in another country um a couple of the groups were lactose intolerant um we had a couple of veggies so yeah we we sort of literally had, had ticked off the full um the full spectrum so mostly everyone had their on bike nutrition sorted and everyone kind of uh had that with them um so we had pretty heavy bags at 
at the start um, with just packed full of, of stuff that we individually wanted. Everyone had their sort of post-ride recovery shakes and stuff with them that was as per um, what they were used to. Um, but sort of breakfasts, breakfast, lunch and dinner really was um, was always as a group. And um, yeah, it's, it is quite a challenge to, to feed um, feed cheaply 14 people that have all got very different different desires i think yeah no i completely agree i'm, I'm someone who has uh, uh, got a few intolerances and allergies and uh, yeah eating in another country can be an absolute nightmare so i imagine there were some uh, some nervous moment moments from you at certain points when you were um, hoping not to get any gluten yeah. but uh, uh how she <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's one of those funny things, isn't it? When you're abroad, it's like you you can you can have you can read the labels. It doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna get you're gonna be okay. I've had some interesting moments where I've eaten something that on the on the on the the label said that there was nothing that I would uh, react to, and uh, certainly was having reactions. So uh, I'm glad you got, you all made it through. I mean, what was your general approach to nutrition? Maybe it maybe throughout training as well. Um. So as I say, I think uh, on the bike, everyone usually was pretty good. Um, everyone had uh, mostly kind of bars and things with them that they were used to. Um, if I'm allowed to name drop, we had some great support from Veloforte um, providing us with a with a fab discount on bars. Um, I generally use what I'm used to using because I know they're um, gluten free um lots of the girls sort of made sandwiches in the morning so that they could um put them in their back pockets so that it was just a bit more real real food um generally i don't think anyone was particularly using that many gels um we weren't weren't really at the intensity where um you want to kind of be ducking into gels too often um so i think on the bike most of the time we were okay uh, I think the heat was a big challenge, just making sure that you were eating enough um, and drinking enough. Um, I also generally work with precision hydration stuff. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think on the bike, generally everyone just used what they were what they were used to. Um, so I don't think that was that was too much of an issue. Uh, lunch was very simple. Um, we would generally stop wherever we could. Uh, actually one day we did literally stop on the middle of a roundabout. So there was a nice patch of grass <laughs> on the middle of a roundabout and that was perfect for us just to throw our bikes down. Um, we just did a picnic style lunch every day. Uh, we generally just stopped for about half an hour. So, um, the crew would just come out with uh, a load of baguettes for everyone that could eat them. And then we just had literally kind of cheese, ham, some tomatoes, just stuff that you could, uh, make a quick sandwich with. So just try to keep it, yeah, fairly simple, I think. It's probably not the ideal. Um, I guess me especially, I've done some work in the past with a with a nutritionist because of being celiac um, and because of kind of such big requirements um, physically in terms of doing something like this. And um, it's never ideal what you're then kind of faced with. And you've, you've just got to be open and flexible enough, I think, to make make changes and then keep in the back of your head sort of the sensible choices. Um, I think especially around recovery, everyone was pretty diligent around just making sure that they'd had something uh, fairly soon after we finished. Um, you know, we didn't always get it right. We definitely had moments on the bike where, you know, we just had nothing and felt completely empty. 
Um, and that might have been first thing in the morning when mm-hmm. you start, which is never great um or kind of six hours in so yeah we didn't we definitely didn't always get it right but um yeah just try and keep it fairly simple really absolutely i guess that you that leads a great leads me to think of a great question here what would you change if you were to do it again um i think being self-funded obviously we had a massive driver to try and keep the costs down um so that affected things like the location of our accommodation um so obviously one of the things about the tour de france is that it's always moving um and there is you know quite significant transfer times between stages um i think sometimes our choice of location meant that that transfer was even longer um you know if we had a few luxuries in terms of um masseuses or physios that would be great although touch wood we didn't actually no one was uh injured there was a bit of taping going on but nothing uh nothing too bad definitely try and uh get more sleep (laughs) um so there's always that balance between you know if we ride a tiny bit quicker then we're on the bike less we've got more time to recover um but equally you kind of dip into to more reserves um so potentially just looking at at that balance on some of the days i think would have been helpful um we haven't actually done our debrief um there'll definitely be definitely be some more stuff um but you know there's so much that worked so well and just ensured that we had a fantastic time and we got our message out there um i actually made a comment to the rest of our group today of you know, we need to write down those things as well, because you don't want to lose those things when you focus on, you know, the feedback and what and what would you change? It's kind of what are the absolute things that you've got to keep? Um, and for me, that's the, you know, that's the team. It's the team spirit. It's the absolutely kind of unfathomable support from our crew. Um, they were just incredible. Um, so all of those things is equally important to, to hold on to and, and recognize. Absolutely. And uh, again, though, you, you bring me on to something. How can uh, how can our listeners find out more about your uh, your team and your uh, the event or anything like that? Um, so we've got a website, internationals.com, um, and we're on all social media. Um, so just search for internationals. So we're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, at the moment, you'll probably be getting uh, lots of sort of throwbacks to uh, <laughs> yeah. a stage uh, from uh, from the from the route. Um, but also, we're sort of reposting and just highlighting some of the great media coverage that we've had. Um, so yeah, sort of video clips and and uh, interesting articles and things that that you can have a read through. Fantastic, yeah. And uh, how has the media coverage been? Have you uh, got many uh, uh, the larger networks to to give you some coverage? Yeah, it's been it's been great actually, and um, it makes it just so rewarding to have both you know friends, family, and also people that we don't know send messages in that are, you know range from I've actually just been motivated to you know, go and buy a bike or I'm going to get the bike out the shed for the first time in 10 years, or actually I'm going to just try and push myself and do one more lap around the park. We've, we've had sort of that end of the spectrum all the way through to, um, we were interviewed by Reuters. So we've been in the New York times, uh, we've been in the UK, we've been in the Sunday times and the telegraph. Um, we've been on BBC breakfast twice. Um, 
Yeah, the Aussie girls have been on SBS. So that's the TV station that cover the tour. Um, so, yeah, we're really, you know, I think, look, one of the main reasons for having the global team was to try and get the global reach. Um, so that's what we're really trying to really trying to push. Um, and so far, so good. But obviously, the more the better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, really, uh, really well done. It's uh, it's been a, a absolute pleasure to kind of following your journey and uh, and checking in and everything. Um, I guess that leaves us with one last uh, question, really, and that is, what's next for you? What's next for the internationals? Um, yeah, it's a good question, um, <laughs> and we're sort of uh, grappling with it a little bit at the moment. So, um, actually, we we obviously finished uh, just at the end of July. Um, there was an event in, in London, in the UK called Ride London. Um, that was just last weekend and kindly we were entered into that. So the UK contingent, five of the team, uh, turned up last Sunday to do Ride London, which is, uh, a hundred miles, um, on closed roads around London and Surrey. Uh, so we turned up sort of having had about six days off the bike, <laughs> um, <laughs> So so that was kind of our immediate focus, um, just sort of get around and, you know, chat to people and and have a bit of fun. Um, And that was all good. Um, Now, at the moment, I think everyone is uh, focusing just on their recovery. Um, I think we've the UK girls have got uh, an event pretty much in about a month um, that we're just sort of finalizing. Um, and then beyond that, yeah, there's lots of there's lots of ideas floating around as to uh, what we do next, whether we do it again. Um, you know, have we fulfilled our ambition in terms of of creating that positive change? And, you know, is there still a need for us to, to do something else? So, yeah, there's lots of ideas at the moment. Nothing Absol- too concrete. Absolutely. And uh, I know, as you say, nothing's been uh, set in stone yet. What's the leading idea? I would love to get like maybe a little exclusive here. <laughs> um, so I think the lead, the leading idea that's definitely been suggested is is that we go back next year and uh, we ride the tour again. Um, whether that is the same team or a variation of the team or an entirely new team using kind of our brands that that's been created um i don't know but yeah it's uh we did have quite an amusing uh whatsapp conversation when the route was published and uh, a picture arrived in our in our inboxes with the comment mm, too soon <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that was about three days after we'd finished um so yeah there's there's definitely uh there's definitely some thoughts as to as to next year Fantastic. That's always really good to know as well, because that means you've obviously you've enjoyed it enough to to know that you could go back again. So uh, on that, we'll uh, we'll we'll call it there. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on, Helen. It's uh, like I said, it's been a real inspiration to me to watch your journey, to check in and uh, have a few conversations with you along the way, and uh, uh, an absolute pleasure to have you on. I know that the listeners are going to really enjoy uh, listening to this podcast, and uh, we we all wish you all the best, and uh, and not just in terms of like personal or the internationals but but we wish that uh, they that the, the sort of parity becomes uh, a bit more in line a little bit more equality in, in terms of the uh, the gender divide in cycling so so congratulations to you to all and uh thanks for coming on thanks for having me thanks pav